Welcome to Pivot to First. Hi, I'm Mike Seidel. I'm the CTO at Pivot CX. Every day I get to work with some of the brightest minds in the industry with one goal, turning hiring and people strategy into a competitive advantage. Hi, I'm Mike Seidel, five-time startup entrepreneur and sometimes successful one. I'm joined today with David Bernstein, Pivot CX's uh, Executive Vice President of Corporate Development. That's a, that's a mouthful, David, but we're glad to have you on the team. And I'm really, really excited about our guests today. I've got um, two people that have really worked at every level you can work in the entire HR organization tree. Um, they, they've you know, started at the bottom, worked all the way up to vice president um, to, to run the whole thing and, and chief people officer in the case of Erica. So uh, today we're joined by Erica Duncan and Aaron Ullman. They are uh, two people that we actually met us uh, when they got Pivot CX and they got it last year, um, probably about two months after we had launched the new product. So they were early customers for Pivot, but more importantly, they put Pivot CX to work in the company that they were at and got an incredible result. And I, I don't want to spoil the story for you, so I won't tell it here. Um, and now uh, Erica and Aaron have launched People on Point and Erica and Aaron are helping growth mode businesses. So think startups and companies that are trying to grow and get to being acquired um, really to, to accelerate the outcomes they're getting through people strategy. So Erica and Aaron, welcome. David, good to have you. Thanks for having us. So if you could, Erica and Aaron, share with us the journey uh, that, that took you to People on Point. Started back in 2011. Um, so Erica and I have worked together now for 10 years um, in four different states and, and uh, with five different employers. Um, and one of the things that we kept seeing are, were the same problems. So solving a lot of the same issues. Uh, it was oftentimes um, a lot of archaic systems and processes and, and kind of bring, bringing them into the current age. Um, so fast forward to, you know, probably a couple of years ago, um, we considered, you know, kind of going out on our own um, at that point. Um, I think it's kind of been a, a goal, long-term goal of, of both of ours um, to kind of run our own business. Um, and, you know, a couple of years ago, you know, it was kind of considering that, you know, but it was at the peak of the pandemic. So it didn't really seem like a, a good time to um, start up a business, you know, with that much uncertainty in the world. Um, so both of us ended up at CareFinders, um, where ultimately we knew it was a short term, you know, kind of a stint, um, knowing going into the organization or going into our positions, we knew it was going to, the company was, you know, going to sell. That was kind of the goal. Um, the trajectory was about two to three years, um, two to three years turned into about a year. Um, so it was a little bit quicker than anticipated. Um, and then we got back to, okay, well, well now this is our opportunity to, to go out on our own again. Um, so we started People on Point and, um, you know, now we're working with um, business leaders and HR leaders to, you know, solve their people problems um, and really in the spaces of, you know, um, scaling for growth, optimization, um, as well as mergers and acquisitions. So our target are really kind of smaller to mid-sized companies um, and helping them out with that HR strategy space that, um, you know, they may not currently have um, support for. So one of the reasons I was so excited to have both of you on Pivot to First was that you really were a part of our early story with Pivot CX. Um, 
you both uh, were at CareFinders, which was, was a customer of ours when, when we just launched our new product and uh, really were able to use that to, to do some pretty transformational things at CareFinders. Um, eventually, CareFinders went on to be acquired, and, and I think that was always the business goal right. over there. And uh, so tell us a little bit about how the people strategy at CareFinders ended up leading to that merger. Yeah. Um, so the ultimately, um, CareFinders, personal care company, um, personal health care, so providing um, people assistance in their homes. Um, and it really comes down to each caregiver, um, you know, provides revenue for the business. Um, so the more caregivers that you have, the more business you ultimately have. And, and similar to other spaces in healthcare, um, you know, there's there's way more demand than there is supply. So we, we don't have, you know, in any space enough nurses, enough caregivers um, to provide the, the demand that exists today. So um, while that's, you know, you know, obviously we want to be able to meet that demand, but um, certainly a great opportunity for companies that can provide um, those services. So as many as we could hire, you know, the demand was certainly there. Um, so that's kind of where we, we started working with Pivot CX because we couldn't hire enough. Um, so we ended up, you know, um, uh, around our departure, we were hiring probably two to 300 caregivers a month. Um, so, you know, it's a very high volume role and to be able to have that tool um, you know, to provide that experience, um, as well as, um, provide the ability to get through that many candidates and, and ensure they're qualified in a, in a quick enough time frame. because as you can imagine, the competition also, um, is quite high. So, you know, that's kind of how, um, we all met, obviously. Um, so, um, it, you know, but ultimately that was kind of our preparation for our, our merger um, and our sale was um, really growing as quickly as we can and as fast as we can while sustaining, you know, or building the processes to be able to sustain that growth um, to, to merge with that company or make ourselves a, a viable um, company to be purchased. One of the things that was interesting about the timing of CareFinders prep for sale as well as the you know intersection of meeting pivot cx was was covid and and you know everyone's talking and still talking about what we did in the during the pandemic to adapt and and change and be flexible and all of those things but as you can imagine what didn't change was the need for caregivers and homes so as aaron mentioned we've got a long background of, of history together a lot of it in, in healthcare. We're either gluttons for punishment or we have a great time. It just depends on the day and how you look at it. Um, but one of the things that wasn't new going into personal care was the need for the clinical support um, and, and the revenue generating role, right? That's every industry has the revenue generating role. In this case, it's, it's the aid. And so taking, as you mentioned earlier, those archaic systems, the recruiting was done on paper. Everything was done, you know, handwritten. And so the leaning in and, and trying to do something fairly radical in this particular industry. It might be a little behind others, but in this industry was using technology. And, and in this case, that was Pivot CX and trying to use the QR code and text candidates. And, and the other thing I wanted to mention going back to COVID was utilizing the caregivers that were already trained. So utilization becomes one of those metrics, utilization of staff how to best use labor costs because in our particular case, and there's other businesses that run this way, the entire workforce is per diem. So the more that the current trained workforce works, as opposed to continuously hiring other ones that then don't put in the hours, 
that becomes the balance. So we also use this tool and others to engage current employees that weren't working many, if any, hours. And again, that that challenge exists often or regularly, but the ultimate challenge was during COVID with unemployment paying more to sit at home. So engaging and having that, again, communication hub to be able to continuously talk to our current employees, or at least those on the roster, they might not be working, but at least those on the roster was another big win for us. So, okay, let's, let's kind of move into more general business kinds of things. And let's, let's look at how should growth-minded founders and CEOs think about people? How, how should, as a founder, how should I be thinking about my people strategy? A people strategy needs to lead the organization. It needs to be seen as a strategic imperative. Um, I think people strategies, human capital is often looked still somewhat administratively or certainly a, a bit more of a, as a lag or a culture builder. Um, and, and that's not untrue with the culture piece, but culture is merely an output of all the small inputs every day, every decision, every behavior, every rule, every policy, every time you reward or recognize or don't, um, and every decision that someone makes creates a culture. And so I think to assume that that HR is the keeper of the culture, we often hear those things. And I think that that perspective is a bit archaic. I think that instead as an owner, it's a whole lot more about hiring thinkers, about having you know human capital leaders that are willing to disrupt um, and then supporting them when they do disrupt. That can be the, the latter part, usually more the challenge. Um, the, the typically notice everyone loves transformation and disruption until it affects them. And so it's a matter of, of asking for it and then allowing it to happen and supporting you know HR human capital through that. Um, but I think that those are the ways to think about people as a CEO, as an entrepreneur, because we all know that talent's our greatest asset. It always has been. But nowadays, it, it's it's a commodity that not everyone has a luxury to have or to um, to not prioritize. Right. It has to be every day part of the strategy um, and really driving force of business because it enables ROI, it enables growth, it enables the KPIs. None of that exists without a talent strategy um, around it. So what are some of the mistakes that you see founders and CEOs making with their people strategy, especially if they're trying to shift into growth mode? Yeah. Um, so, you know, as, as I mentioned, Eric Ozai's experience has, has ranged pretty greatly, you know, from 130,000 employee companies to 3000 employee companies. Um, and, you know, kind of throughout our experience, um, you, you know, we've, we've seen the same problems as I mentioned, and it doesn't matter how big the company is or how small the company is. It's still the, a lot of the same problems. Um, typically, the larger the company, the more complex the actual problem becomes um, and the harder it is to um, change or, you know, correct uh, whatever you want to um, call it. But um, they're, they're still rooted in, in the same problem. So what um, you know, kind of our focus is now is is really kind of trying to work with those smaller, mid-sized companies that are in growth mode, make those adjustments, make those changes before they become you know a, a major challenge down the road. Um, and one of the ones that we've probably seen more often than not, even in the larger organizations um, that have been established, um, but something that it's helpful to correct early on. 
um, is as it relates to, you know, the general leveling of titles and um, kind of what goes behind that in terms of benefits um, and pay and those types of things um, to ensure, you know, somewhat of an equity within the company, um, you know, that it's not, you know, there's not people throughout the organization that have, you know, various titles and various pay that there's no structure behind it. So, um, and, it, and it doesn't come down to necessarily everybody needs to, you know, fall in line with the same title or the same level of title. Um, really, the title itself might be irrelevant, um, but again, it's really what the structure behind the title is. You know, it's it's the pay, it's the, the benefits that you offer. Um, ideally, there's a number of levels that, you know, all those titles fit into um, that kind of allow for that structure to then, um, you know, when you acquire companies or when you grow, that uh, you can slide those people into that structure uh, without, you know, necessarily disrupting their their day to day lives and affecting their title. Um, but you still have that kind of um, in the background. Um, we're working with a company right now that you know is kind of in that space where you know everybody's a, a VP, right? And um, their compensation is all over the place. It, it ranges probably by hundreds of thousands. Right. And, and some of it, you know, rightfully so, but the, the, the challenges is, well, maybe some of them really aren't a VP, um, you know, and, um, you know, it's, it's building, you know, either that structure ahead of time to say, okay, well, no, they're, we're actually not going to hire a VP for this role. Um, that's not quite what we need, but you know, if, if that does exist, um, you know, we can still come and work behind the scenes to build that structure um, to, you know, avoid that disruption um, down the road um, that, that can be caused from either having to take titles away um, or people start talking and, you know, obviously pay and benefits and those types of things are, are near and dear to people's hearts. So um, it could be a challenge for, for um, when those conversations start to happen amongst themselves. I think a couple of things to blend, Mike, your questions of what do CEOs need to think about with human capital and then, you know, kind of avoiding pitfalls was your second one. And I think the overlap is, is you know, brings a few things to mind. One is is hiring thinkers um, and CEOs, HR folks need to hire thinkers. Past experience absolutely matters. It, you know, education matters. But thinkers aren't as easy to come by and people who are willing to be courageous to make difficult decisions um, is one of those things. And that's exactly what Aaron's talking about, to stop and to say something isn't right, we can't all be a VP. It might not be the most popular decision. It certainly isn't going to be a popular communication, but to avoid, you know, making the, the problem more prolonged, you've got to pause long enough to address it. And so there's ways yeah. to do that. Funny, funny thing, you, you bring up hiring thinkers. A long time ago, I had a mentor that I worked for who, who would tell me, when you hire people, hire smart people. Right. I'm like, okay, why, why? And he's, well, if you hire smart people, then you don't have to be smart. Right. <laughs> and I wasn't sure what he was saying about himself, but I... You know, flash forward to now, and I'm, I, I've got a team of software developers, and absolutely, you know, I'm hiring software developers that are smart, right? Because that way, I don't have to be smart—the the one that's smart about every last thing in the product—and it really right. makes a difference. Right. So, well, hiring thinkers, thinkers are entrepreneurial. 
Yeah, I'm sorry. Uh, thinkers are entrepreneurial. They blaze their own trail, right? They, they empower others. And so thinkers ideally are, are smart people who are also willing to, to be inside their comfort zone and outside their comfort zone. And those things are difficult. And I think one of the pitfalls, if you don't, again, have thinkers or if we are operating rotely, um, it, it, oftentimes it's amazing to me how many times people start solving the problem without identifying the problem. And so that is a repeated thing. And we have clients every day that we're pausing to say, one of the things we, we, we explain, we're not bringing solutions looking for problems, right? That would imply that, <laughs> that we've got this toolbox of solutions and we just go look for the right problem and start plugging it in. Instead, part of what we do is to advise on what the, what, what the gap is and first identifying what that gap is. And often in a room of leaders, if you ask them all what the gap is, let alone the desired state, it's not the same. And so identifying and aligning what that is, is really important first to, to identify what the gap or the issue is before everyone starts to jump in and solve it. Because the outcomes will never be just the desirable ones if you don't you know, take the time to articulate that. Um, and again, title leveling can certainly be an example of that. But, um, you know, it's, whether it's a remote world, everyone now wants to be remote or we're never going to be remote. Right? It's not always a polarizing thing. Instead, we've got to identify what are the issues in front of us? What's the desired outcome and the path in which to? You know, get there. So one of the things I'll say over my career, I've been fascinated by watching, um, for example, nearly every PwC CEO study always talks about people and being the most right. And we hear this phrase ad nauseum. Um, and yet at the same time, HR teams are under budgeted, yeah. they're under resourced, right? And there's this giant dichotomy between what's said and then how we kind Absolutely. of support the team. Any thoughts around that? Any yeah, I, I do. I'll jump in on that one first because that's a fashion point of mine. So you might have to tell me to, to sit down and be quiet. But um, <laughs> it's one of the things that I'm, I'm going to give you a real life tangible example. So one of the things that I, I think is fascinating, we're all in a bidding war for talent, right? The war on talent, all the other things that are overused. And so now we're going to win this war. And in our quiver, we have sign up bonuses. Right. That is the most short sighted. Right. So everyone's going to what have it. They're going to outbid each other on sign on bonuses as though that's going to keep an employer. So the reason we do that is because that's the most short term cost change. Right. To your point, David, they're under resourced, underutilized, understaffed. And so the best thing we can do is to solve the short term problem in front of us, which is give a higher sign up bonus. When, in fact, all we did is perpetuate the problem because now we're outbidding ourselves. Instead, if we were hiring thinkers, if we were resourced to be strategic partners, as David just mentioned at the table, we would not be surprised. We would have zero surprise faces around the table because we created this. We had the pension go away. We've made everything short term. We put the focus on cost, not retention, years and years ago to sort of sit and be shocked that employees don't have the same loyalty, that they don't have the golden handcuffs, that they're going to leave for a bigger sign-on bonus, isn't a surprise. We actually created it. We perpetuated it. We still are. So until we stop well, resource them differently for longer-term things, pay for pensions again, or DCDB plans, or pay for kids' education, or whatever it is, and think differently, and resource differently, we'll have a different outcome. Do you think that CEOs, do you think that the CEOs and, and the C-suite out there really understand um, that talent and your, and your really your people strategy has become a lot more important because of the demographic shift and, and it kind of got hidden by COVID, but we, we made the flip to where 
you know, the, the U.S. labor market is not going to be growing until 2046. So we're going to be in this this zone where there's not enough people to go around for a long time. The question is, do they understand that? Yeah. Do you think that the do you see in your clients and the people you're talking to a realization that, oh, my gosh, I've got to think about this stuff again? Right. Or are they still all thinking cost-cutting? I think some do and some don't. Not a good answer. It's just a reality. I can think of our clients mm -hmm. and we have some who are, you know, still jumping over dollars to pick up dimes. I think that that's one of the things that, again, we're working on is identifying what those issues are to solve them differently. I think we have some CEOs, though, they tend to be more of the entrepreneurial growth-minded CEOs that we, we cherish working with because they do know that. They do identify that. They do know that human capital has to lead. We have to leverage it. We have to maximize. People want to work to top a license, whether they're an engineer, a nurse, a software developer, whatever it is, knowing that and empowering them to do so and automating the things that they don't like to do, that that's the magic. So what are the skill sets that are required then for an HR leader to kind of be able to work with those CEOs to get to be able to kind of talk and get people's strategies understood to make the arguments for better resourcing and different hiring strategies and more technology and what how do you how, how do you work with your clients for example around that how, how do you coach and build hr leadership as well as talking to the, the c-suite yeah and, and i think um you know similar to the ceo the the chro or, or hr leader people leader whoever it may be has to be a little bit entrepreneurial themselves they have to be willing to think outside the box try new things um you know be able to fail um and you know try again um and that can be you know a challenge if if the environment is not set up you know to allow for that um, you know, in this new environment that many of us are, you know, experiencing for the first time, you know, it's, it's going to take some trial and error, I think, to get it right. Um, and to have that, um, space to be able to, to do that, to experiment, um, I, I think is, is, you know, going to be probably the best way to figure it out. Um, and, you know, it's, it's going to take the, the leaders at that level to, to be comfortable doing that, to allow for failure, to allow for, for new things um, that they've never done before, um, and, and to experiment. I think they've got to have courage and curiosity, right? I mean, everything Aaron just said is so important. It almost is an inverse, like without the things he just listed, I almost can guarantee you they won't be a successful HR leader or any leader, it's not just HR, but I think that everything you just articulated, it takes it takes courage and curiosity to do things differently. And that does come with failure, that does come with risk, that does come with experimentation. And it comes with coaching because not everyone's wired that way. So we A, can't even assume everyone knows how to coach, right? So there's there's that. And then, you know, there's things that, that I was at, my kids are, are teenagers. I have a 16 and 17 year old and they had a back to school night last, last night, which has not happened in several years, a couple of years anyway. And so one of the things one of the teachers said really made me pause and think about the workplace. And her comment was, you have a junior and they haven't worked collaboratively in a classroom close to other peers since eighth grade. 
And just think about the fundamental changes in eighth graders to juniors, right? And we have to reteach them how to work collaboratively. So when you think of that as coaching and some of the things that Aaron just said, we have now an employee base that hasn't worked together in years. Now we're still trying to figure out is remote okay and we're doing this on a screen. That's an eight to some people, that's not an eight to others. So I think another skill set for HR is figuring out how to connect with people. Connection is now difficult or at least has to be intentional. And so I think a successful, probably again, any leader, but certainly an HR leader, an entrepreneurial HR leader is going to figure out how to do that, be curious to try new things and to adapt, to connect to their employees or their teams the way they need to be connected to. We can't assume that everyone's you know, connection point will be the same. They don't all feel belonging in the same ways anymore. So the modalities in which we do that to help people in, engage and belong is probably a little more creative than it used to, or needs to be more creative than it, than it used to be. Well, since you brought up the uh, topic of, I think, the post-COVID era, which is, which is the remote, not remote question, um, one of the things that, that seems to be a real challenge for businesses right now is picking locations. Where do, where do I put my company? Where do I put my facility? You know, I've got a, I've got a manufacturing plant. I need 300 people. Where do I put it? Where, where do I put the office? Um, what, what do, you, do you help clients out with those sorts of questions? Uh, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I, I think it can be not only used in that format, but um, for those that are looking to, to be remote, where do we just generally find talent? Um, but, you know, in the instance of, you know, the brick and mortar and, and some businesses obviously can't be remote, um, you know, manufacturing is certainly one of them. Healthcare is another. Um, you know, we have to put facilities in place and we have to find the people to be in the facilities and there's just no, no other way to do it. So um, in that case, yeah, absolutely. We've um, recently worked with a client who wants to um, onshore, you know, some of their work um, and they're, they look to us to say, okay, well, where's, where's the best opportunity to build our new, you know, hub um, as they want, you know, their workers to be able to come in. Um, so we were able to help them out, you know, not only identify, you know, where the best concentration of, you know, the talent is, um, but also what does the competition look like in, in those specific areas, um, you know, and, and maybe that outweighs, you know, the, the number of people. Um, if the competition is much greater, we're going to have to, you know, spend much more to acquire them um, than, you know, maybe a different location. Um, um, also looking at cost of living and, and just general costs of the organization, um, you know, for different regions. Um, it's obviously going to be cheaper to, you know, put a hub in the southeast as opposed to the northeast. Um, just generally cost of living is less, wages are lower. Um, so that's also a factor as well when you got, you know, a whole blank canvas of the United States to work with. Um, and you can be that, you know, um, broad in, in where you put um, your location. Um, so those are things we can we've definitely um, helped out with. Um, but um, to your point of, you know, now post COVID, a lot of places are remote. Um, you know, that's obviously less of a challenge for them. Um, but, you know, now they can now that allows them to recruit the cost across the country. Um, they don't necessarily have to recruit in their, you know, 50 mile radius. Um, they can look, you know, across the country. We were also um, talking with somebody the other day who had um, an office located in Albany and Albany, New York, upstate New York. And they were having um, some challenges because now Boston is being able to recruit 
um, into um, Albany, um, just given that they don't have to come into the office anymore. Um, so they're able to play Boston wages for somebody living in Albany. Well, that's a, a major challenge. Um, and, you know, my challenge kind of back to the, to the individual was, well, is there any reason your, you know, office in Albany can't um, hire people that are in Florida? where cost of living and wages are much lower, um, you can get a higher level of talent for a lot less. Um, and, you know, there's, there's no reason they can't. Um, and we can help them out also with that to say, okay, well, um, you may be located here, but there's a great um, concentration of talent, um, you know, on the other side of the United States, or maybe you want to stay in the same time zone. Um, you know, we can work with them and, and find where can they actually recruit and pull from um, you know, high level talent, um, for, for maybe less. Um, and you know, that remote world is now, uh, opened, you know, some businesses up to that anyway. Okay. So, uh, you know, we've, we've done this successfully and now we're approaching a merger or an acquisition. Um, what, what things do CEOs and founders need to think about on the people side before you go into a merger? I think this is something a lot of business owners and, and CEOs, we're all out there trying to drive our company to an exit. The problem is when they get to that exit, a lot of times it's a mess. So how, how do we prevent that? Uh, it, it's a great question and things that, again, I think we need to spend a lot of time wrestling with um, and, and kind of rumble with what do we want that to look like? Because, again, we, we don't take the time to intentionally have those conversations and play out the scenarios. Um, one, one of the major questions are, as we, as we do acquire and or merge with someone else, is it a holding company where, where we're an umbrella of companies and we kept our autonomy and we kept our independent decision making or are we fully integrating? And those look completely different. The path in which to be successful in those two scenarios are very different. And so we've had experience and are working with, you know, some clients right now that are still wrestling with that decision. Some, you know, we've experienced say we're definitely going to be integrated, right? We definitely need to have the back office function. We want to have payroll and finance and HR and all of those things be in the, in the you know, it, that, that's that's the synergies, right? We're going to, we're going to make up that money. And then we go to make the first decision, Maybe it's during integration, maybe it's post-close, and it could be as simple as, well, how many PTO days or how many holidays? And, well, we want to let everyone keep their own. Well, you can't, right? It's got to be, you have to be able to unashamedly jump into either A, I'm, a, I'm going to be a holding company and everyone's going to have their autonomy, or B, we're going to fully integrate. The Erica way of saying that is you can't be a little bit pregnant. You got to go fully one direction or the other. Um, and then own it, right? Because not making that fundamental decision and specifically early on makes the people part really hard to rally around, right? So the communication is not consistent and is not positive with conflicting messages if we have not made that salient decision of, again, which our business model. I think the other thing that we need to think about before acquisition is when to involve human resources in that process. It's often linked. Um, again, our experience over and over again is it's at LOI, often post LOI. Um, but again, then it's HR's job to make sure the cultures blend. Well, typically, 
not always, but typically there's finance folks and there's business development and there's attorneys and there's more finance folks and <laughs> more attorneys. And so we've everyone's focused on the wedding and no one's really focused on the marriage. And so then we, again, get to the surprise phase of the marriage isn't working, but we really never took the time to, to, to look at what that should be. And so I think all of those things anticipating on the front end is, is really important. Yeah, you know, and, and one of the things I've, I mean, it goes without saying likely, but right, acquisitions and war mergers, by the way, I, there's really never a true merger, right? There's always right. a, there's always right. a conquering hero, right? Yeah. And whether it's yeah. stated or not, the, 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 everybody knows who it really Absolutely. is, right? And if you're on the, if you're on the being conquered side, as the employees in that place are always, right, change of fear, yeah, change is scary. Um, my job is it at jeopardy? Right? What's going to happen? Right? All of these kind of the, the the fear of the unknown, right? There's a bunch of things that come up. Right? Managing the anxiety through the change process is huge, right? And that's got to be a huge piece of the people strategy, I would imagine. It absolutely is, and and there's two things that in my that come immediately to mind as you say that, David. One is authenticity, um, and the other is transparency. And while words we often use, not always. Do we follow those in action with the same level of, of loyalty to those words and commitment to those words? And so I think one of the things that we found and certainly advise others in often is the communication and, and being it's it's kind of candor, right? It's kind of candor to tell somebody exactly what may or may not happen to their role or their job. To to give a non-answer is scary. Even if the fact that we might not know, and to your point, David, it's managing that anxiety. But in order to manage that anxiety, you have to role play. You have to give them options. You have to play out what could happen so that they're prepared. Um, and so it's not making promises, but it's also um, not promising things that won't happen, right? Or to your point of there's really never a merger. There's usually more than becoming partners too, right? I mean, usually that might be true. We might have a partnership, but I think to, to be coy, about the power in the relationship or in the you know merger acquisition, who the parties are, I think it's disingenuous. And I think it's insulting to those that are part of the team because they deserve to know. They will, they will be committed to places that are loyal back to them with communication and that they again feel that they belong to. So we've seen that a lot of times where people are less than forthright. And in an effort, it's a sincere effort to mitigate the anxiety, but usually the lack of transparent or authentic information actually causes more anxiety, in my opinion. Right. I, I would agree. And to your point, um, I mean, nobody wants to deliver bad news, right? Mm -hmm. But um, but I think most people would agree they would rather have the bad news delivered than be left not knowing. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, a simple thing, you know, as, you know, somebody who's, you know, filled out an application and sent it in for, um you know, to be ideally applied for a job. Well, nobody wants to hear back. Well, no, you, you know, sorry, we're not interested, but nobody really wants to not just hear anything, <laughs> right? They always want to at least get a, a clear yes or no. Um, so to be able to, when you're going into the, that, you know, situation, to be able to outline for, for the employees of, again, the, likely the one being acquired, um, what does that look like for them? And yeah, I'm sure you will lose some people, but you probably would have lost them anyway. Um, but also I think people then just have a better understanding of what, you know, they're getting themselves into and they can make that decision for themselves if it's, you know, something they want to continue forward with or not. Um, but to Erica's point, it's, it's the not knowing that creates the anxiety. If I know what it is, then I can make the clear decision on, yes, this is something I want to continue to do or no, it's not. 
um, it's that space in between again, that little bit pregnant space, um, mm -hmm. that nobody likes to, likes to be in. And that probably causes, you know, the most anxiety and, and people to, to leave, um, more often than not. You know, Mike, another, you know, couple of pragmatic recommendations when you say, what should we think about before merger and acquisition? And this is a, a dialogue and a dance, Aaron and I did at those multiple states and multiple employers is there's a real pragmatic view of what's going to change for the employee. So again, finance lawyer, they know it's going to change payroll. They know the incentive plan. Right. We have all of those logical pieces. But it's the how to do it, when to do it, how to communicate it. So if you used to have a, a pay cycle that was every week and you go to every other week or vice versa, you know, those are the things that in my role or my peers, if they weren't willing to have those direct conversations of the impact, it makes things like Aaron's world really difficult because he's left with migrating the change, architecting the change, right, doing the actual technology change when we didn't stop to think about the impact. It's the human impact that we've got to manage. And there's a change leadership to all of that, where we've got to anticipate all those things. Because again, my humble opinion, but shame on us if we're sitting there at the point of change and someone has a surprise face that it didn't go smoothly. If you're changing people's payroll, that's a big deal. And so how to do that, you know, really takes some, some dedicated thought. It's not a transaction. The transaction going well, in my opinion, you have to assume it's going to be flawless. It has to be. But what, how we well, might on the employer side, on the employer side, boy, it might be a transaction to the employer, but to that employee, it is the transaction. Right. It right. better happen on time. Yeah. Oh my, that's such a such an interesting thing. But uh, I've lived through a couple mergers and where things weren't communicated well. Right. And people quit over that stuff. They, they will just flat out quit. I, oh, you didn't pay me. I'm out. Yeah. Or yeah, my paycheck is supposed to. Yeah, you're a no, big you're, company. You're supposed to do that. You're, you're right, Mike. It's value and it's respect, right? It's respectful to the employee to prioritize that. To not just look at the transactional impact, but to your point of it being the transaction, to respect that the fact that that's the impact it has on them and their family. And so to expect an employee to be loyal to an employer who doesn't prioritize that, um, again, is, is fairly a predictable outcome. Now, you know, you brought up something really interesting earlier, which was smaller companies. Uh, this happens a lot because it's easy to give people titles. Uh, you proliferate a lot of really, really, you, you, you pile up the vice presidents when you're small and then you grow. And a lot of the people that have that vice president title really, you know, when, when I'm putting on my corporate hat, you know, I'm a big 13,000 employee company. Vice president has a very different meaning than it does when I have, you know, when I have 20 people. Um, do you see a lot of problems when companies merge where, where the title proliferation that happened becomes a really big issue post-merger? Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's it typically is often one of those things that are overlooked. Um, and, it, you know, it kind of goes back to, um, you know, the, the previous topic that we were, we were discussing on title leveling and, um, you know, it's either, you know, you, that conversation needs to be had up front and, and say, okay, here's what your title and where you fit in this, in our new larger organization. Um, and typically it's a lesser title, um, you know, it, it, as that would, to your point, a VP of a 13,000 company is very different than a VP of a thousand 
people company. Um, and so it's either having that crosswalk and likely compensation, they're probably compensated the same. So at the end of the day, you know, really it just comes down to how attached they are to that title. So, you know, there's either, you know, you can have that direct conversation and, you know, um, do that crosswalk and, and, and reduce that title, which, you know, you might lose some people over that. Um, or as I mentioned, you know, in the background, you still kind of have that structure in place to say, okay, well, you know, you're a VP of this company over here, but you actually fit in, you know, at a much lower level um, than, you know, you might have previously. Um, you know, you can keep your title, you know, if that's, you know, if, if that's how, you know, what we've agreed to. Um, but at the end of the day, you're not going to, you know, get what a VP does at a parent company um, in terms of compensation, benefits, maybe equity, you know, those types of things. Um, but you're going to be aligned to other peers across the organization um, in terms of responsibility. I think that's the other one that really takes the, the courage we talked about earlier. And so to be able to level that, you know, we've been at employers that then use colors or numbers for, you know, you really have four, four levels, right? It can be green, yellow, blue, and red, whatever it is. But these six titles fit in the blue category or band, and these four titles fit in the green one, right? And so it's a way to still hold that business card title, if you want to call it that, or that, that that's important to people. And, and someone has an emotional attachment, and that's important because to take that away is often demotivating and something you can't come back from. But that's a way to allow that business card or outward facing title for a community that's different than their inner level into a company that again, has these three or four or five levels, whatever it is based on size. And when you're dealing with startups that are, you know, 30 people growing to 60 people growing to 100 person, it's really important to set those levels up first because then as you acquire more, as you, as you hire more, you can tell them up front, your business card title or whatever, you know, you're coming in as a, as a VP of, you know, whatever it was, and that's still the five people. And But here's where it fits in the larger organization. And here's how you're seen. And here's your span of control. And here's your authority. And here's your decision making. That's really what you've got to be able to level out. If we can detach all of those things I just listed from the title, there's a way to marry that and ideally have an, a positive experience for both. Win-win can still be a little stretch, but, you know, ideally we, that, that's what we're going for. Right. And the levels in the background um, really are able to be a tool, right. To be able to do that. And we have a lot of clients that, that, that haven't thought of it in that exact way. They're, they're attempting to do it that way, but they're not marrying up whether it's an incentive plan, a long-term plan, equity, benefits, all of that into those, those you know, again, categories or, or, or um, levels make it a little bit easier to deal with the, the battle of titles. So how do you how do you think about, or what, what, what suggestions, if any, do you have relative to all that tied to talent acquisition? How, yeah, what's your thoughts there? For, as recruiting for, for yeah, I mean everything you just said is so important, and it's about it the is. internal experience. And then you've got these, you know, the talent acquisition teams that are trying to, you know, call it a employer brand, but that all of that comes right. together to create a a, um, a messaging, right, a positioning, right? right? I'll, I'll, I'll talk about the, yeah, yeah. I'll talk about the TA side, um, David, and I think Aaron will have some suggestions, I guess, on the on the compensation side of that. But first of all, it's just the fact that even in our answer, we're going to tag team the answer, and, and that to me is symbolic of you've got to tag team the approach in talent acquisition. And so, one of the things that we did in multiple employers um, is really grow a, a deeper connection in teams from TA not operating on its own as a separate arm. 
um, of the organization, often not a desirable one till as of late when everyone needs people. Now they're everyone's best friend. But instead, how do we, you know, make a strategic partnership between the talent acquisition folks um, and compensation or comp and benefits folks? And that's important because of the way you go to find a passive or an active candidate, right? Either way, you've got to be able to lean in on what the what the potential of the role is. So I think getting to the candidate's heart of what they want in their own career is important. And then a way to be able to, again, authentically and transparently explain that. So if title is important to them, that let's know that and, and address that right up front. If we can explain the value of the role or again, the decision-making and span of control and autonomy and all these other things, but be honest with them up front, that might be called something different in this company because of size or scope or industry or whatever. I think a lot of it's in the value of the conversation. Um, and then, you know, again, if I'm the recruiter and or the leader trying to entice people with my employee brand, I have to be able to speak to it and know in compensation what that means. Um, and so, again, that's typically how we live this out in our own dynamic, whether it's now in our own company or in the dynamic of companies in the past, is having the conversations ahead of time that, that I would know what Aaron and our team are going to be able to recommend for me to be able to have, you know, in that offer. Yeah, and if it's not clearly defined, um, you know, how how does one go and sell it, right? <laughs> um, so it, it certainly, as a recruiter, makes your job a whole lot harder if you have to go out and sell this job, but you don't quite know or understand what it could entail in terms of compensation, benefits, um, incentives. Um, so, you know, I've, I've seen um, organizations that we've come into where, you know, they kind of are doing it on the fly. And we end up, you know, giving maybe sign-on bonuses for people who didn't ask nor need uh, a sign-on bonus. Um, and we just, you know, provide it or don't provide it for some people, you know, because they didn't ask. Um, but, you know, it just happens to be, you know, again, they're doing it kind of off the cuff. But when you have a clear defined plan and, and where each role fits and, you know, maybe it's a director level job and the director level job gets X, Y, and Z. Well, now you can go and sell that and say, okay, well, here's what you get. You know, here's what I can offer you. Here's the package. Um, and if that doesn't exist, again, that just, that makes that sell that much harder. And, you know, maybe you missed out on a candidate um, because you didn't offer something. Um, and, and you lost them because, well, you know, you didn't offer me a sign on bonus. Well, I didn't know I could. So, <laughs> you know, it, that's probably happened a time or two. Are you, are your clients talking to you, um, anything yet around this whole new wave of conversation relative to pay transparency? Yeah. Yeah, yeah definitely. Um, yeah, so I, I've, I've been a... Because I'm watching it, right? I mean, I, I have five conversations in a week about it, and there's seven opinions about how to handle it, right? <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, I'm a big proponent of pay transparency. Um, and, you know, I think it goes much further uh, than just posting a range, you know, um, to be transparent to the public. Um, it, you know, it really comes down to it's important for, for people with inside the organization to understand how their compensation is determined. Um, what's the process that they take in order to determine what their compensation is? What's the philosophy? What's the strategy behind, you know, are we market leader? Are we paying at market? You know, what, whatever that might be. Um, because if they don't understand that, when they go to then publish these, you know, um, pay ranges online and they see these pay ranges and they know where they're at comparatively, um, they might not understand 
you know, um, and it might be upsetting to them to find out, well, I'm only at the bottom of the range that you just posted online. Well, maybe there's a reason behind sure. it. Yeah. And then every candidate coming in thinks they're going to be at the top of the range. Right. And, exactly. and, then, and then you offer them something less than that, then you've got an upset moment from, from what's supposed to be a happy time, right? Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And it's important, you know, again, that they understand how they were then placed in that range. Was it experience? Was it performance? Is it, you know, tenure? Um, you know, those things all come typically into play. But, you know, uh, some organizations may, you know, tend to take performance as more of a, um, you know, a, a deciding factor on where they fall within that range or they might take experience. Well, if you then understand where you are, you know, relative to that range, um, then you understand, you know, based on your experience or whatever it may be, you can at least be comfortable knowing that you're in the right place. And then likely the next person that gets hired is going to end up in the right place. So do you see this as a conversation that recruiters are going to need to start getting better at <laughs> and, uh, if they yeah. don't already have that kind of a, Yeah, I would say. Yeah, recruiters and, and hiring managers as well, because the hiring managers are going to then have to go have conversations with their current staff. Right? I, I, so, sorry, I think I think the this is one of those examples. I'm going to use our, our conversation here as an example, something we talked about earlier, where we're trying to solve something before we identified the problem. So I have no idea who came up with trade transparency, but presumably it's to solve a problem, right? And I'm with Aaron, I'm a big proponent of, of the transparency of pay, but to truly be a proponent of it, you have to know what you're being transparent about. So if I have a range from zero to a million dollars of a, and to say, this is my pay range, you could make, you know, a hundred thousand or you could make a million a year. Well, technically I can check the box. I was transparent with my pay, but again, that's not really the problem we're trying to solve. The problem we really should be trying to solve is not only transparency to it, but understanding and education to what goes into a pay range. Are we paying at market? Is market what our goal is? Or are we going to be 75th percentile or 50th percentile? And to your point, David, or everybody thinks you're going to be at the top, in a pay-for-performance culture, very few, if any, are ever at the top. Because if so, you don't have a pay-for-performance culture because there's nowhere else to aspire to be. Right. So there's a fundamental disconnect from candidates wanting to come in and be at the top and a company that's a learning culture, a learning organization to say, we always want to aspire to more and more greatness and we'll continue to raise the bar. That disconnect from the beginning means that we will never, ever intersect at the same you know, place. So again, we didn't identify what the problem was. We jumped in and all solved it with pay transparency. And my concern is fundamentally we'll check the box that it's transparent without actually having gained the benefit and the value of the conversation and the respect to the right. organization. And, and I would, I'd imagine that the the emotional experience of, of feeling fairness, it must yep. play somewhere in this, right? Absolutely. Yeah, and if I, you know, I might not like it, but if I feel like it's fair, then maybe I'm not as grumbly uh, mm -hmm. versus, right? right? Well, yeah. well, yeah, to your point is, as long as I know that the person next to me got treated the same way, you know, they might not get paid the exact amount, but it was based on the same criteria. Mm -hmm. Then you can at least say, okay, yep, I might not like it, but you know, at least it's it's fair. Right. Um, if you don't like it at the end of the day, you still can you know go somewhere else. But you know, at least you're you're confident that the next person, the next person, the next person are going to be evaluated on the same criteria. 
And I think that's one of the, an example of something when Aaron said earlier that in our own careers and our own, you know, kind of dynamic back and forth, the two of us, we realized we were solving the same issues over and over again and not realizing, and we're working with clients today that are, you know, professional organizations, whether it's real estate attorneys, you know, physicians, all of these professional roles that truly don't understand the art and the science of compensation. And so they aren't able to articulate and communicate it because they really don't understand it. And so the point that one of the things that we do over and over again with clients, and again, those were real examples I just listed now, are to, is to educate HR and certainly talent acquisition, as well as leaders and hiring managers, as well as candidates to, again, be able to calibrate on what the expectations are. Because to your point of the emotional feeling or fairness or equity or perception, which is really what all of that is, the perception of all of those Again, if we haven't calibrated, we'll never match. And therefore, you've made a good opportunity, you know, a, a rough experience that is something, again, we could have avoided. So I think that having the transparency first better be internal. I'm all for external transparency. But again, all we did is check a box. The internal transparency is first is to say, here's the factors. Here's the criteria. Here's the scale. Here's our target. If the, the target is 20 to $60, most of you, Aaron's, you know, helped train multiple people where here's the bell curve. So the majority, 80% of the people are going to be right here, right? You want 80% in the middle of the bell curve and 10% and 10% explaining that makes them go, oh, okay, so everybody's not at the top. Without that education, how would you expect a recruiter to sell a job that isn't at the top of the range of $100,000 to $1 million, right? So it's it's the transparency, in my opinion, to truly have the desired effect is much deeper than just than, than just publishing the scale. All right. So let's go ahead and wrap things up um, with a couple of final questions. I ask all the guests these, these three <laughs> questions. And so there's no wrong answers. You, you, and just, you know, kind of just shoot from the heart here. So uh, what business book? is your favorite business book that maybe has helped you change the way that you look at, at the world? And we'll start with Erica. Oh, pressure's on, huh? <laughs> um, Just don't pick the same one that I would. Yeah, I know. Now we're going to have to. Meanwhile, Aaron is Googling furiously. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I'm going to go with my reaction to favorite is typically a Brene Brown book because it makes me think the most. So Dare to Lead, I love. Um, Atlas of the Heart, I'm, I'm listening to right now. Um, and so I think that those are probably my, my, you know, go-tos, but I, I will tell you that, um, great leaders, uh, or good leaders ask great questions. I believe it's John Maxwell. Um, I'm a question kind of girl, uh, goes with my desire for curiosity. So I think, uh, Maxwell's probably the, probably the overall favorite. Aaron? Um, you know, I, I, I would, favorites just hard to pick, um, but one that's probably at least impacted me in, in my career the most, or I've at least, it's a simple concept that I've taken, um, you know, and, and been able to utilize time and time again, and it comes, you know, in, in change management, um, it's probably Simon Sinek's start with why, you know, the simple concept of just starting, like, why are we making this change and explaining that to people? goes a long way going back to the transparency in, in mergers and acquisitions and or you know implementations and systems or whatever it may be to just start with the simple concept of why are we making this change um i think goes a long way um, with a lot of people and, and it can really you know help them understand the the need for it 
Okay, next question here. Favorite movie? <laughs> well, these big words of favorite and like all time, and that's just pressure. Can I can I tell you um, the favorite in the last like year or so? Um, sure. I, I would say for me, oh, and what's the category? These are hard. Um, I, I think the most memorable movie in the last year, let's put it that way, I'll, I'll say that is Underdog. Um, and I think that the Kurt Warner story was just an impactful story. I think that I, I happen to be a Zachary Levi fan, so I think that was part of it. Um, my kids are at the right age, and my son's playing football, so probably a lot of reasons. Um, but I think that's probably the most memorable movie in the last year. Um, but Central Intelligence definitely makes me laugh the most. <laughs> <laughs> At a different end of that spectrum, I could watch Central Intelligence Weekly. <laughs> yeah, again, favorite is, is tough for me. Um, but one of my tops um, that I could always sit down and watch, um, you know, probably beginning to end without a problem is probably Shawshank Redemption. It's just, you know, it's a classic in my opinion. Classic, yeah. <laughs> the human spirit, right? Right. Okay, and then final question. Is there anything that you want to share with the audience that we didn't talk about? You know, that, that's, um, that's my favorite question, actually. Yeah. I always ask that as well. That's why Aaron's smiling. Um, and yes, for me, I think two, two things. Um, own your hustle. You know, own your own hustle. Define what your own hustle is nowadays. Um, own it. Uh, be unapologetically focused and committed to it. Um, and, and just define what that is for you and whatever's right for you, but do, but do it out loud, do it intentionally, um, and, and really be unapologetic about, uh, about leaning into it. Yeah. Oh boy. Um, yeah, I, I, I'm not a big open-ended question type of person. Um, <laughs> it's just way too open-ended. Between the two of you, you're kind of the analyst, right? Yeah, but yeah you can tell, right? Did you, did you notice? Um, <laughs> just, I, I prefer, a little, just a little bit. I prefer direct questions. <laughs> Where I'm like, let's talk more about white space and esoteric things, and you know, yeah. it's one of the it's one of the pleasures. Ten years in, right? We can probably answer for each other, maybe better than ourselves. I don't know. What do you think, Aaron? You could probably answer. What, what would yeah, I say? Probably. What you talk about? Answer yeah, it that way, right? Yeah, that would probably be easier. Good compliment to each other, though, right? Yeah. Yeah. I'll give you, Aaron, I'll give you an easy closed-ended question. Okay. So uh, somebody in our audience wants to get a hold of, of either of you. How do they do that? Absolutely. Um, so they can uh, visit our website, um, peopleonpoint.org. Um, there's a you know, contact us form. Um, I think that's probably the, the easiest way for them to get to us um, directly. Um, and uh, yeah, that's probably the simplest way. <laughs> All right, Aaron Ullman, Erica Duncan, thank you so much for joining us. We're really, really glad you could be with us today. To everybody in our audience, hope you have a great day. Thank you. Thanks, Mike. Bye, Dave. Bye.